welcome to Empowered Expression. Today, I've got a fabulous guest to introduce you to, Simone Patterson, who is the founder of the Sanctuary for Women, Children and Pets. She's also an ex-prison officer and has some fascinating stories about that. An ex-judo champion and uh, is into us live from the Gold Coast. A lot of people know Simone. The reason why her story today is really important is because she's going to court in just a few weeks and she's fearing for her life right now and we need to hear her story. Welcome, Simone. Lovely to have you here. Who have you got with us, your birdies? Today we've got Roger the Macaw and Roger's a bit bit naughty today. Thank you, Susie. And this is little Ralph the Budgie. So the best buds are they? They get on well. They're little mascots for the refuge and they're just adorable. And sometimes they get on well, sometimes they don't, like most siblings. Yeah, yeah true. The macaw's big. big he's a bit big. He's like the size of the whole bungee, like his beak. And <laughs> so they're, well, they're not really your fur babies, they're your feather babies, aren't they? They're my fur babies, but we've got Lola, the Great Dane here, who just adores Ralph and Bungie. So they're best friends, a Great Dane and a Bungie. But oh, she gets caught down by the Bungie, so that quite is funny. Cool. And most people um, in Queensland, a lot of people in Queensland, especially on the Gold Coast, um, have met you and know who you are through your work with charity and your work for women, with women and children who are escaping um, domestic violence. Um, would you like to give us a bit of a, a lead up as to what actually inspired you to set up the refuges that are secret and dotted around, you know, places that nobody knows and the work that you've done? And Thank you. Seven years ago, I started the Sanctuary for Women, Children and Pets, but I didn't want to just open a refuge. I wanted to open a refuge that was for boys over 12 because in Australia they don't take boys over 12 in refuges and it had to have pets because I love my fur and feather and finned creatures. So for me, it's a no-brainer. Having a son, there's no way if I was running for my life from domestic violence, I'd say, well, I can get my girls out, but I can't get my son out. So for me, I just went, that's it. It's got to have pets and boys over 12. And they deserve to be safe just as much as the girls do. And I, I think when a boy's over 12, they're in their really formative years too for what they're watching, what mum's doing. And if mum's running for her life to keep them safe, to take the boy, it's absolutely paramount as well. Oh, absolutely. So, I discovered that um, when I was going through some problems at home and I looked up places to go and my boy was 14. And I was like, oh, you can't bring him with you. I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? Oh, I'm going to leave him behind. What am I supposed to do? Live in my car with my kid who was um, well on the way to being six foot five. It's like, I was really dismayed about that. I thought that was in incredibly unfair. And places that don't take pets. I mean, pets are a part of the family. If you're fleeing domestic violence and you've got your favourite dog, you know that something's going to happen to that dog or that cat or the bird. Never mind having to, you know, be told that you can't bring your boys with you. Uh, so I'm, I'll salute you, and I know so many people do with what you've set up there, and how many you've you've saved hundreds um, of families. Yeah, we're we're on to hundreds. So I set it up seven years ago as a result of there was three murders here on the Gold Coast by women who were killed by the men that they loved, and there was three in one week. 
and I started ringing council and government and saying, what can you do? What can you do to help? I, I, I'm a social worker. I've dedicated my life to saving people's lives, but what can you do to help them? So that's that's what got the fire in my belly. And then I went to a rally in the December. These women were killed in the September. So for three months, I'd asked far and wide. No one would help. No one would give me a house. So I ended up just getting a loan and doing it myself. And I'm in debt 1.2 million, which is still a lot of money. I paid 2,200 a week back in repayment. So there's a lot of money needed in the charity before we even start helping the women, which it's tough when there's no government funding and there's no one backing me financially. It's me looking out for the women, children and pets. and. I love what I do every day. We're, we're saving lives and that's that's what we're there for. Oh, it's amazing. And you used to, I remember um, as I interviewed you uh, a few years ago um, when I was working as a beauty queen and supporting uh, a charity that we both support as well. And uh, I uh, learned about you and your work and met you then. And because we actually lived in the same suburb, um, I really loved that I could donate clothes um being a wardrobe stylist i had brand new clothes i'd bring the brand new clothes and you had this really cool thing first of all it was your garage that would get full of stuff or your carport and then you had the the trailer thing outside you know unlock the trailer you could put stuff in there and the beauty about you is that you're not charging anybody for things you know and i knew that you could use men's clothes as well uh whereas sometimes well actually all the time if you take in australia if you take um well everywhere i think if you take clothes and things to an op shop, then they're going to put a price tag on it, which is sometimes too much. And homeless people and people fleeing from DV don't necessarily have access to lots of funds uh, to be able to actually afford clothes for themselves or their kids or books or whatever. So I've always loved what you you were doing. And um, I remember uh, that time um, when those three murders occurred and uh, it's good mm. now that the press is actually reporting a lot more domestic violence and we're really speaking about it and it's so important that right. we keep this conversation going, you know. Um, you worked as, um, back in 1989, you were a woman that worked in a male-dominated industry um, as a prison officer. What was that like? And you worked at some, You, I remember, well, tell us actually, what was that like? Did you work in a women's prison or a men's prison or what? I started out working in a women's prison, which was Silverwater Jail, and Mullawa was a maximum security women's prison, but I didn't like it. I couldn't wait to get out of there, and I spoke to a friend who said, I can get you to Park Lee, but it's, it's a pretty rough jail. Like, I don't know if you can cope, and I'm like, oh, I can cope. <laughs> you know, when you're, when you're 20, and I think you're six foot tall and bulletproof, and you can take on the world. And I think back then I was so stupid to think, yeah, men's jails, how hard could it be? And it was hard, believe it or not. And there were some of the roughest, most notorious prisoners who'd done gang rapes, gang murders. It was just, it was full of bikies. It was full of drugs. It was back in the 80s where it was flog them, lock them up and don't talk to them. They're not your friends. And then... Yeah. While I was in the prisons in the early 90s, they brought in unit and case management, which was a new thing. And it was sit down and 
play a game of chess with them and talk to them about what's going on for them. And when you were started before the 90s, and I was like, no way, we're not going to talk to these prisoners. We we are not their friends. And it was like we, we give them the basics and that was it. And there was riots and the prisoners rioted over a politician changed the laws to do with jewellery of all things and they rioted over losing rights to have access to jewellery. But in jail, a ring can be worth $10,000 and it's a big ticket item to be sold for drugs. And um, there there were a lot of drugs back in the jails back then. So it, it it was rocking and rolling to say the least. And there was a lot of bad bad things going on in the prisons and not just with the prisoners. So there was a lot of corruption and a lot of bad things that, that would happen in the jails. And there, there was a lot of officers that were intimidated by senior officers. And it, it was a terrible time for a woman to be in a jail, let alone a male jail. And the the way you, you would just spoken down to the whole time it was you're just here to make coffee and you you don't need to come to work thinking that you're ever going to be equal to us because you're not equal you're a woman you're lower than a prison dog and ironically i ended up working in the dog squad but the sexual harassment and sexual assaults that happen with female officers in the male dominated jails was horrendous and what what happened to me was it didn't matter where I went whether I was in female or male jails the male officers were just quite horrendous and some of the females as well but the harassment bullying intimidation that that would happen in there because you're a woman and you couldn't speak up and if you did there was no one that would listen to you anyway so you just learned that there was no point trying to speak up. And when you did try and speak up, I then got threatened by very senior officers that, you know, we can put you on the bottom of Sydney Harbour in concrete boots. And it was like, wow. And then you try and turn to police and they're like, yeah, but you screws are our friends too. So, you know, I'm not going to dog it and lock up a potential mate that's a prison officer and especially if they're in the hierarchy in the prisons like they're, they're still our mate so we, we we can't charge one of them and you know you're a you're a skirt you're in the job so you accept that bullying you 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 went in there knowing that you were going to get bullied and it's like i went in there to keep law and order not be part of it and you know this is horrendous so that's that's what it was like for a female officer that everyone was able to harass you and that was just the way it was and if you don't like it get out of the job that's that's how you were treated and it was just verbal harassment was it it was physical uh it was physical it was verbal it was just horrendous it it didn't matter what Roger is just throwing his tail around here. It, it was from the top down that it was expected that you would be harassed when you got to work of a day. And 
you know, you'd think it would be prisoners trying to do it, but the officers were much worse than the prisoners a lot of the time, which is terrible to say, but that's the truth. I've often wondered if, because, um, uh, you know, we, we, we don't have, as um, society, we don't have much and an ability to look from the outside into the prison system. We see stuff in Hollywood movies that, you know, we're given these examples of what may or may not happen and what may or may not be real in prisons and, um, uh, you know, and we see movies with women being catcalled and yelled at and had shit thrown at them, you know from prisoners, but you don't really expect that sort of behaviour from their, you know, their fellow officers that are working with them. Um, do you think, and at 20, like when you were 20, 20 back then is a different 20 to now. You know, there was no internet. We were, you know, we were quite young and in Australia as well, we are quite young and quite naive when we were 20. And as women, we were raised to not have a voice and we were raised to be subservient to men. Um, we were raised to not talk back, uh, so it was like endemic in in our very psyche. Uh, it would have been a really tough job for you to do. Um, how long did you manage to stay as a prison officer? I was in the prisons a bit over six years, and I worked in the court system there, taking prisoners from the cells up to court and sitting with them in court and making sure they didn't escape from court. Some funny things happened in them where prisoners, when they're being sentenced, you, you think they're just going to be sitting up and going, yes, Your Honour, you've given me 15 years, thank you for that. And one time a prisoner didn't like the sentence he got, so I said to the judge, he got up and he threw a brown eye and he said to the judge, you can blow it out your ass, Your Honour. And... The judge just said, take, take this prisoner out of my courtroom, get him out. And it, it was just so horrendous that you go, wow, they can be that revolting, even to a judge. Like they have no respect for the court system. They have no respect for authority. And it doesn't matter whether you're a cop, a police officer or a judge, you are going to pop whatever they want to say or dish up to you. So then you, you try to train people like that and pedophiles you're taking a pedophile from court when they've been charged too when that's it's pretty revolting because some of them will laugh and go did you see did you see that I made a cry I've still got the power I I, I can make a cry and it's like you monster that that kid was just so young when you sexually assaulted her and now you're not even remorseful for what you've done and you're laughing that you've still got power to make someone cry. So it's stuff like that, that it doesn't matter who you are, what age you are, you know, it's, it's things like that, that you go, wow, how can you be that evil to the poor that you have no remorse and you're just a recidivist that you've sexually assaulted so many children and you've got away with it for so long. And then when you get charged, it's, you know, Wow, for me, I, I'm I'm innocent, and they're they're all innocent in jail. They'll all tell you how innocent they are, but some are innocent. But and there are innocent people in jail, but not many. Wow, that would um, you must have experienced the sides of life that you will never ever forget. It must have really toughened you up um, psychologically, <laughs> mentally. 
uh, as a young woman um, working in a place with, the well, the worst people in society, really. What made you decide to be a to work in the prison system and I know that you were really physically fit at the time so we'll, we'll do a quick segue because when you were younger you were um you were a judo champion and you were on your way to um fulfilling your Olympic dream weren't you so you were fit uh, imagine it couldn't be um like a wuss going and working in the prison system you'd have to be you know have some sort of real physicality about you or be able to like protect yourself from the men that you're working with I, I I could and I did and I, I now look back and think how much I would die if my children at 20 said I'm going to go work in the prisons. I would just be beside myself and I'd do anything to make sure that did not happen. But working in there and being really fit, I think that's what actually saved me in there and being physically fit and strong that I didn't need drugs and alcohol. Judo was my drug of choice. It, it still is. I stopped training about six months ago with veterans and then a lot of the veterans are SAS soldiers who've come back from Iraq and Afghanistan and they've seen the worst of the worst. They have shrapnel damage. They've been shot at. They've had horrendous stories. But these guys have fought for our country and to keep us safe and to stop stop bad things on enemy lines. And they're some of the most beautiful people I've ever met. So to, to work with these guys and to hear their stories and that the, there's these big dogs that are over there that it, it takes like 15 rounds in the machine gun to bring down these dogs that are like wolves over there, which you go, wow, never... Like we've all seen and heard bits on TV, but to hear the bits behind the scenes with these guys, that's the amazing part. And they, they have plates in their faces, plates in their feet and their hands because they've been blown up over there. And they're, they're young, fit, strong men. And some of them didn't come back. Some got killed over there. And that's really sad that our troops and our soldiers are giving up their lives and putting their lives on the line, fighting horrible murders and the atrocities of war, of what, what goes on. There's PTSD and there's PTSD for pretty much most police and prison officers who've gone through the horrendous stuff with riots and things you see behind the walls of, in a prison. For me, there was a lot of issues with safety all the time in a jail. You're constantly assessing safety and security and keeping keeping the prison calm because if the prison's not calm, if it's rocking and rolling, it's such a dangerous place to be. And the day before the riot, I remember once a prisoner came up to me and he said, Miss, I like you. You've got to get off the square tomorrow. You can't be on the square tomorrow because... And I said, what, what's what's happening? And we knew you could feel it. In a jail when it's about to riot, you, you can cut the air with the knife type thing and there's just an air about it and you know it's danger and you know bad things are about to happen. And I said to him, what, what do you mean? And, you know, I was young so it was easy to act dumb and, you know, be like, what, 
what, what's going to happen? And he said, well, I know all the prisoners are starting to take their property to reception. And when prisoners are taking their property to reception, you know, they don't want their stuff burnt in the riot. So they will take what's valuable to them, their magazines and books and whatever they've got in their cell. And I said, yeah, I've noticed a few. And, of course, we knew that. We knew through intel. That, yeah, you meet on the um, parade every morning and the bosses will tell you, you know, what's happening. And there's there's a lot of psychology behind the jail walls with with what happens with um, the the prisoners and there's triads so here are the asian ones there's there's the bikies and you can't have the hell's angels with the common sheroes with the banditos because they'll all kill each other and it's so you've got to keep the factions calm and then you can't have the muslims with the you know the lebanese and the you know there's so many dynamics and personalities in a prison so the bosses will tell you on parade each morning what's what's happening and who to look out for. And so whenever a riot's about to happen, they'll gear up outside the jail and they'll have different um, things going on behind the scenes where the officers will be notified, you know, you're, you're in riot squad one, you're in riot squad two, you're in A, you're in B and line up and gear up, here's your shield with that and cave their heads in and crack as many open as you can. And it's like, what? But that's how hardcore it was. And it was, do not break the perimeter. If you if you break the perimeter here, you could get yourself another officer killed. Like you keep your shields interlocked and you just swing that baton as hard as you can and it, it it doesn't matter what happens. We'll get the camera off if bad stuff happens. And it's like, wow, this is this is bad. And you have gas grenade guns that you can shoot gas canisters at the prisoner. We've just lost Simone there, so I'm just going to uh, push pause and see what happens if she can come back. So, yeah, sometimes the gas canisters, you, you could be up a tower where you've got a shotgun, a Ruger .223 calibre, big good rifle where prisoners come near you, you, you're allowed to shoot them and it's shoot to kill because you, you could be saving this life. And wow. then if they get to the tower, you've got a thirty calibre Smith & Wesson pistol to shoot them or you've got these gas grenade launchers that you're, you're shooting the gas canisters at the riot. So you're trained to um, to shoot all the different weapons. And so, yeah, a, a lot of... Gas you to them. What sort of gas is it? Um, tear gas. Okay. To just get them to be almost on the ground. When you, you can't, once you've been gassed, you, you can't, you can't keep running. You just once you get a big inhaled gas, you, you go down for the count. It's yeah. it's hard to breathe, and it, the you, you, nasal passages, your eyes run. You you can't get enough oxygen in, and 
it, it will make them stop really quick. So, so you would have um, gas masks, that sort of stuff that you'd be able to wear. As a woman, yeah. um, is how we've already established that um, the police officers, sorry, not police officers, the prison officers didn't really right. think of you and that you were fairly lowly. Did they put you in dangerous, uh, dangerous situations or did they keep you at the it, back? They they would try, but because I was fit, I was strong. I, I you know sometimes I'd be better than some of the male officers who were a bit older physically, and would have been able to physically look after myself. Right. But it's the it, it's still the fear. Like it's terrifying going into a riot. You know, as a female, if they get hold of you, you're going to get raped minimum, and they'll they'll do what they can in in a riot previous to when I started, they, the bikies saved so many officers' lives because the Lebanese prisoners were in frying up oil to tip on the officers that were trapped in wing officers and they couldn't get out. And they, um, the bikies got in and said, no, 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 you can bash them, that's fine but you're not allowed to torture someone. You're not allowed to tip hot fat on them and you can't, you can't do this. What what you want to do is it, it's wrong. So the bikies smashed up the deep fryers and said, well, you're not going to do that. And then when the Lebanese got the hot, hot water in the deep fryers, then the bikies came in and just ripped the deep fryers and jumped all over them so they couldn't be turned back on. But... It's things like that that when you go, well, bikies are really bad people, but then when they save officers' lives that you go, wow. But one officer they got hold of who couldn't get out of the office in time, they got hold of him and they picked up a typewriter and the big heavy old typewriters back then that we used still in the 90s when I joined in the 80s smashed his head in so many times with the typewriter that his wife when she went to see him in hospital she walked past him couldn't recognize her own husband because he was just so badly injured just, his face just didn't look the same he's nothing looked normal on him anymore he was just covered head to toe in blood so you couldn't you couldn't see who he was but he came back to work and he was one of the most beautiful, kind officers that you just go, how could you hurt me? such a sweet guy? But that's right. It's it's like a war zone that they don't care who they get hold of. If they get hold of you, you're, you're in as much danger as the next officer. So it's it's really, really scary in riots. That was, that was dreadful. Interesting that bikies have a code. So all the bikes, oh, all the bikes, code same that they they have a code. Would it be so that they could get um, officers on site, or did they just were they just um, so uh, like the torture thing? Because like burning someone, like like you know we see women you know overseas having acid thrown in their faces by you know men who who have been spurned, you know, because it's a different nationality of doing things. The bike is like, we well, can bash someone because they'll heal from that. But if you yeah. burn them with boiling water and hot fat, they'll never heal. Absolutely. And they've still got their code in jail. And it's quite funny that people are so surprised that, you know, you can 
you, you can go and rob someone and you can do a house over and that's okay, but God help you if you touch a woman or a child. Yeah. So they've got their code that there's different levels of protection in the jail where they they won't allow anyone who's hurt a child. If you're a pedophile, your life's still in jail. And they do horrendous things to pedophiles in jail. And one the of the... Rock spiders? Are they called rock spiders? They're called pedos. They're called pedophiles. They're, they're called like horrible names in jail. And they're hated by blue and green in jail. It doesn't matter whether you're an officer or a prisoner. No one likes a sex offender. No one likes someone who's tortured children and had sex with them. So pedophiles in jail, their life's hell and their food gets tampered with, they get beaten. Officers used to turn a blind eye to a pedophile getting beaten and go, well, he's not human, so it doesn't matter. He's only a pedophile. And human rights, forget it. If they're a pedophile, well, back in in the in the old days, in the 80s and 90s, if, if they were a pedophile, their life was horrendous. They'd have their phone calls taken and... That's that's just how they were treated. And if you beat your wife, you weren't much better than a pedophile. Even back then, it was like, no, no, no. You can you can beat another bloke on the street and that's okay. It's just assault. But you assault a woman or a child, nah. It's like the bikey code in jail. It's like, no, no, no. You can't do that. And so, also, sorry to interrupt Sorry. Yeah, all the factions of the Vikings, like the common Camancheros and the and the um the Hells, oh, yeah. they all have that same code. Absolutely, they're right. Yeah, yeah, and even um, granny bashers, you're not allowed to hit old people. You can't can't do anything to old people. That code, it, it's all facets of the code. It's you, you can't women, children, and elderly. You don't touch them. And I wonder if that, um, if there is still that sort of code in prisons now, because there's a lot of men that go to jail now for bashing their wives, and they, you know, as you know, you know, being um, in domestic violence, having or, so many women fleeing that their men don't, the men that actually harm them, the men that are supposed to love them that harm them, don't necessarily seem to. Uh, get stopped harming them. We see so many women that actually get killed, you know, and then we see the gutless men who, you know, set fire to themselves and kill themselves so what, they don't go in the prison system. But, uh, you know, I wonder, you know, if what's, I mean, are you still in touch with um, other women that work in the police? Do you still in the, sorry, in the prison systems? When you did walk away from all that, do you still have contacts there? Like, do you know, sorry, do you have an ear to the ground? Do you know what it's like there now? Yeah, I've still got a few friends and um, I think in life if you have more than five good friends, you can count your good friends on your hand, you, you, you're a very rich person. And I've still got some good friends that still work in the jail and they've been in there for over 30 years and I just go, wow, how could you do that job for over 30 years and still be sane? And, yeah, we still have regular contact and there, there's there's good people in there. They're, they're not all bad people or prisons. And is there, do prisoners, um, like, so when there is a riot, 
and I imagine that there may there's quite possibly prisoners that don't particularly want to riot, uh, but are caught up in the whole mass um, warlike situation, yeah. the whole thing, and the and the testosterone and all that sort of stuff of uh, them surviving as well. I imagine they would be fearful of other prisoners at the same time as being fearful of the officers as well. Is there um, is there any um, like if I know this is probably a really weird question, but if I know it was part of the job back then, but you know if um, prison officers are bashing the crap out of prisoners, are they not liable? Do they not get charged for assault? And do they now, or is it kind of like? In between these four walls, uh, it's a whole different world, and all all the rules of normal society is not happening. No, absolutely, it's you can use excessive force and be charged for it, even back then. And but back then they take the cameras off. These days they can't get the cameras off, so the cameras these days are fixed. They've taken a lot of towers down because they've put cameras in. And you go, well, what's a camera going to do if someone is escaping? Whereas we're, we're trained to shoot. And if a prisoner's in the sterile zone where you're not allowed to be, you're, you're allowed to shoot them. So, but a camera is not going to stop someone escaping. So there, there was big strikes when I was an officer about that exact thing. But no, I, I think... All police and prison officers can be charged at any time for excessive force. I, I do believe back then it was a lot more acceptable to use excessive force. These days, you just would not be able to get away with it. Yeah. And, I mean, the cameras are there for the protection of you guys and the protection of the prisoners as well, aren't they? Absolutely. And... It, you're trained to know if something's happening, get underneath the camera so that if if you need it in court later, it, it can be used in court. Yeah. Well, all police officers have cameras that they wear now, don't they? Any... They do. So it's not a he said, she said, or he said, he said kind of situation. It's like, here's, what, here's the date, here's the video. Yeah. What camera happened. doesn't. No, that's exactly right. Wow, that must have been... Um... Getting up and going to work every day, you would have had to have really psyched yourself into a mental uh, place of going into a place where you would always have a measure of fear, always be looking over your shoulder at the people that you worked with as well as the prisoners. Did you have, was it, I know that, you know, psychologists and psychiatrists wasn't really a big field back then like it is now. Was there much counselling available or was it just suck it up, sweetheart, and get on with it? There was no counselling, next to none. There was counselling in a sense of, you know, okay, you've just seen someone. One time I remember there was an explosion at Park Lee Prison and an officer directed prisoners to be there and weld on a door on a flammable liquid storeroom, but they didn't air it for long enough and it exploded when they started welding. And when I got to, I didn't know who I was getting to, whether it was an officer or a prisoner, because the clothes were burnt off. There was no eyebrows. There was no hair. I couldn't, I couldn't tell who it was. And I said to him, who are you? And he's kept saying his name. It's Taz. It's Taz. And I'm going, I couldn't register. And I, I thought, oh, it must be a prisoner. And he said, 
get my keys off me and get my boots off me, they're burning into my skin. And I just went keys and I've looked down and there's there's these keys and they they were hot. So even when I went to touch them, it burnt my hand. And uh, later on, we were trying to take his boots off, but it started peeling all his skin right. off his feet because he was so badly burnt. And the prisoners were badly burnt. And even when I went to use his keys to try and open the gate, there was all his skin that was melted onto the keys. So it's horrendous stuff like that that you see and you try and um, sort it later with psychologists and it's it's really hard to um, to talk about that stuff. And when you when you are talking to the psychs, you get like five, ten minutes and like, okay, so yeah, you've seen that, it was really bad. You're okay? Okay. So you're over it now? And <laughs> it's like, um, I couldn't really sleep much. Oh, yeah, that's to be expected. Okay, so uh, what are you going to do when you get home today? It's like, oh, I just don't think I'll bother. <laughs> so, But for me, my saving grace was sport, that I was just such a fitness freak. And on my bad days, I knew go for a run before you go to training and just, just pound that pavement and go for a swim before you go training. And I used to ride my bike to and from work so I'd, I'd be riding 30 kilometers before I got to work so not much ever phased me in the sense that I didn't need the drugs and alcohol the officers it was the big camaraderie yeah we'll meet down at Blacktown RSL after shift and and, and we'll, we'll get on it have a few drinks and there were some officers that would do drugs and I was very opposed to drugs and even in the early 90s, they started doing drug testing in sport that you couldn't even have diuretics or laxets in your system when you were training, that you couldn't drop weight really quick and use anything that would drop weight. So I was so careful. I wouldn't even have a chondral cold and flu tablet because it's the the bits and pieces that can show up in a drug test and yet you'd never want to be known as a drug cheat. So it, it was that sort of stuff that I, I was so lucky with what I've done in my life and sport, even now, if I have a bad day at work and there's sad stuff, I'll still go, go for a run. I'll walk Burley Hill every morning. I, I do stuff to keep me sane and to keep me in a good place and I, I've got the most beautiful animals or runs around me. So they they saved me on, on my hard days too. So I think being able to have have this big beautiful dog I've got that looks like she'll rip someone's larynx off. But she's just such a sweet, sweet girl and fifty five kilo chihuahua I call her my like great dane. So it's it's having the mental strength. It's not just the physical. I think in life, the physical is maybe 5%. It's the 95% mental strength and how you bounce back from the hard days and from things that get to you and being able to have beautiful people in your bubble that you, you've got to be able to help you on those hard days too. And that's such great <laughs> advice for everybody because um, to have that sort of resilience 
uh, and to be able yeah. to like using um, your physicality and like you said, going for a walk in nature and just breathing and just being or going and swimming and, you know, um, taking it out, uh, doing physical things with your body. Um, even though, like you said, it, it, it is 5% and most of it is mental resilience. It's a, it's a great way for people to um, really cope with themselves when they're not coping with themselves, you know. Um, there's okay. different therapies that we can do that uh, that help us be us. I used to, um, when I was younger, I, I, I taught myself scream therapy. I was wow. a swimmer and I come came from a, a background of, being in a family where both parents like to use the wooden spoon and hit a lot, you know. Uh, so I would, um, I learned that no one can hear you scream under the water. And I was one, of, I was a swimming champion at school and I used to scream. So I'd get all this, and I've taught people this, not so much under the water as I go into the countryside and do it in the car and from the bottom of your guts, think about what you want to, what's bugging you and scream it out. And I used to do that in the pool. So physically, I'd be completely staffed and then emotionally, I'd get all of my crap out of me as a teenager. So I could go back home, narcissistic mother being, okay, I'm empty now. Here we go. <laughs> um, and it's really important being physically fit as we age as well. Uh, and I know that um, you, you training with SAS people, you come across the most amazing people that, oh, look at that, you're being groomed. That pop into your life, you know. Other people go to a gym. Simone trains with SAS, you know. How do you come across some um, those sort of people? They just I was in life somehow. I was in Africa a few years ago on holidays, and I, I was in the middle of a safari, and that was so but funny. One night, I'm sitting there checking emails, and I had to go to the toilet. And I just know that, that there was something big in the bushes. And to this day, I don't know what it was. I, I don't know whether it was some something that was going to kill me. But that night I was sitting there checking emails and my Buddha coach in Brisbane said, there's, there's this amazing gym that's opening up and I think you'd be interested with their veterans. And I'm like, what veterans? And he said, oh, it's Army, Air Force, Navy, police, prisons, fireys. He said, it's it's right up with Ali. And I went, all right. Oh, you'll send me send me the details. So from Africa, I'm sitting there messaging them. Hey, I've heard what you're doing. I'm, I'm interested. I'm back in a few weeks and I'd like to come and train with you guys. And Scott Steer, he was the main one that I contacted, but it's it's just a little bunch of people and there's exercise physiologists there and it's just beautiful what Luke has created there and it's at Molendina. They're just great people to train with and we're all so injured that, you know, we can't slam each other unless we've got a crash mat in the whole place. So, but we're all very understanding of everyone's physical injuries that you, you can't go hard sometimes because people are about to get a knee reconstructed or, you know, they've got to get a new plate in their knee from getting blown up. <laughs> it just, I, I don't know, I, I do, do meet the most amazing people and probably one of my best friends is um, 
Deborah Locke, she started the Royal Commission into Police Corruption. And, you know, we, we found out once we'd been friends for years, she was going to see us old boyfriend. We were on the Queen Elizabeth and she said, oh, I'm going to go see this old boyfriend and he lives in Tasmania. The irony, we'd both been out with the same guy years apart, didn't know each other. And so we went and sat and had lunch with, um, with John Murray. It was quite funny that, like, just the, the circles. And she was a detective at Parramatta when I was at Parramatta Jail. And she, she seems to think that she remembers me doing drug busts at the jail and she'd come and lock the prisoners up. So just how people cross over and what happens in, in life is pretty amazing that the, um, the parallels in life and the seven degrees of separation and with us, there wasn't much separation. <laughs> so funny things happen in life and the people who come into my life are amazing and I'm surrounded by beautiful people and you know, I've got beautiful mentors like Sonia Driver from Ecotan. I would not be standing without that woman, what she's done to keep me sane on the bad days and being able to ring her and ring Deb and say, I just had a really bad day and just look to chat. And that, that too is one of the best things in life is to have great role models and great strong people in your bubble. And I will only allow amazing in my bubble because I, I just don't have time for it. I I need people who are strong and, you know, you, you become like the five that you hang on the most. And I truly believe that, that the, the five people in my bubble are some of the strongest, most fiercest females that people would be scared of and intimidated by. And it's, it's what, I think people who are compassionate and kind and caring, but they've got to be strong. And I just don't have space in my life for people who can't be strong. And I'm not talking physically strong, but mentally tough. And that's what you need. Like Sonia started a skincare company because she had a skin cancer cut off her face. I knew you just so beautiful. And, um, she discovered Ecotan and made a face oil that would help her skin heal from scarring. And, you know, she was sleeping on a mattress on the floor and had no money. And now she's worth millions that you just go, well, I you, you know, you started it from the ground up and you discovered it. And I started to wait, hey, how did you come up with it? And she says, Simone, it was God. God led me to it. And, you know, God keeps you strong and God protects you, Simone. Like, Roger's got a few things to say. So that's that's what I love in my world, that I do meet amazing people. And not just because of the refuge, like Deborah Lott, I met her and she was my working in a refuge in Sydney Elsie's Women's Refuge, and it was the first refuge that ever started in Australia. And the way the refuge started at Elsie's was a group of really strong feminists said, we need a refuge. So they started the refuge because they said, well, 
there's nowhere for women to go. So the day they broke into this Department of Housing place in Glebe and they took possession of it and they sat in there for a day and they said, well, yeah, now we've got the house, we've stolen the house, but how do we get women to come? So they got onto the media and they they got onto people and said, you know, we've got um, this refuge and Neville Rand got involved. And what happened when the women started to come, so did the police. And so then they put a call out on the media again and said, okay, the cops are down here locking us up at Glebe. Come down, get locked up, let's stand up for women's rights. And so that's how that started. And then Neville Rand got involved and said, stop locking them up, drop all charges, do not lock those women up, give them the house. And then, so the women went, well, let's go next door and steal the next house. So they stole the next house. And that's how a refuge started in Glebe in Sydney in the 70s, in the late 70s. So, you know, kudos to them that the feminist movement started refuges in Australia. And it was it's it's strong people who do stuff like that and go against the grain and go, oh, I see a problem, I've identified it, let's make it better. So that's what they do. And that's that's what you have to do in life to be really tough and strong and see the weakness and go, well, how am I going to fix it? And what do I need to do? So that's that's what people do. Oh, you're so right. You have to have, um, that's amazing. What amazing women you have in your life. And we can't do this life alone. We have to have a strong network, a small network and a strong tribe around us to support us. And to keep us going, and um, you, like you said, we we do become the sum total of those that we surround ourselves with. Um, I'm a big believer in culling. Um, I will cull people from my life, uh, like literally, especially if they kind of I give people three strikes to mess with me. It's like they mess with me. They're kind of it's like no, you can't be in my life because you're not vibrating at the same level that I am, and you're trying to take me down, and you're not supporting me, and that's no good. Now these women at the beginning of um this podcast I introduced you as a woman part of who you are is that someone who is fearing for her life at the moment and you've now done, introduced these really strong women that you have who are supporting you can you take us on the journey of why you're fearful of your life right now and what that involves I screamed from the rooftops 32 years ago when I was sexually assaulted of all places I was working at Berlin Courthouse in Sydney as a prison officer escorting prisoners from the cells to court and back again. And I was sexually harassed by a senior officer and sexually assaulted. I reported it to my superiors. I reported it to the person in charge of the Downing Centre court complex who ran it all back then. And he said, you're a fucking skirt. You know, you are in the job. What do you expect? You know, you're good looking with big tits. Of course, you're going to get sexually assaulted. But, and I just went home and cried and cried and cried and went, is this really my lot in life that since you've got big boobs, you expect to be sexually assaulted at work? And so the next day I went back to work and thought, well, 
I'll go next door to the Bilbon police station. They'll protect me. The the cops will do the right thing by me. They pretty much said even worse than what he'd said, and I just went, I'm stuffed. I've got no support here. So I kept pushing it, and it wasn't just Rudge. He's outraged that his story. Aren't you, Rudge? That's his bedtime, isn't it, darling? Um, and he, the police wouldn't protect me, the prisons wouldn't protect me, and he was doing it for male officers as well. He didn't just do it. But then he he wouldn't stop, and he kept kept going. And the more I'd complain, the more he'd just say things like, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, I can keep getting you. And it doesn't matter what jail I transfer you to or prison. I'll just come and I'll work there and I'll be your boss. So I can I can do whatever I want to you. And you're basically my fucking play toys. And you'll just accept what I want to do to you. And I was just like going, how can this actually be happening? This is in a court, in the courthouse in Burwood. How old were you? And he... I was 22 and I'd been through an AIDS scare with a HIV positive prisoner at Parramatta jail and it was part of my rehab to go back to work in a nice soft environment. They put me in the legal branch in head office at Road and Cutler House in the city and I went to counselling and I had to try and learn to what it would be like to live with AIDS if I ended up with AIDS. And being 22, I then couldn't compete with judo, so my whole world just stopped because, as I've told you, when my my drug of choice is sport and when that's taken away from you, it's like, well, what do I do now? I, I can't train. I can't go to work in the jail. But um, no one from the prison supported me and I was like wow and even the boss the governor of Parramatta jail said so what you got a bit of blood on a cut you know it's actually really going to have AIDS out of it and it was a, a pedophile who had been um, assaulted by other prisoners he wouldn't sign on to protection and so the other prisoners beat him with iron bars and almost killed him and split his spleen open and he was in a mess and when walking down the steps to go on the ambulance stretcher he collapsed so naturally you just you grab them and the ambo officers grabbed him also and we just picked him up and put him on the stretcher and that's when i got blood on my hands but by by doing that i waited three months to find out if i was going to test hiv positive and that that was the most scary time in my life. I believed I was going to die. I started getting symptoms of HIV and you develop rashes and but it's stress. It's your body. You read what the symptoms are and you start developing it. And it's like, am I going nuts? But then you think, but I'm not going nuts because my body's exhibiting these reactions. And now knowing what I know with the industry in the brain and the bits of psychology you you just you think worst case scenario and even though I was really positive I listened to all the positive 
motivational speakers back then, I still thought I was going to die. And it was a horrible, hard time that every day was stress. Every day was hell because I couldn't train. So then they put me in the ports and thought, we'll do this nice, soft, touchy, feely rehab. She'll get back to working in the prisons and she'll be all right. So I then went, ended up in the ports and then I started having seizures, grand mouth seizures. I'd never had them before in my life. And just luckily I was seeing a chiropractor at the time who said, you don't really have seizures. This is just a total stress reaction to what you're going through. And it's not that you have epilepsy. Lucky I had that man in my life. And because of all the injuries, I'd always be at the Cairo, I'd always be at the physio, and I'd always have horrendous injuries from judo. And so back then I started believing what he was saying and he said, look, wean yourself off. I had my Tegretol. It's a really strong drug for epilepsy. And he said, don't tell the um, brain doctors that you're going to do this. Just, just do it and listen to what I'm saying and you won't have epilepsy anymore. You won't have seizures anymore. And you're thinking, oh, this is such a gamble. This is so left field. This is not the medical model, which I never really agreed with medical models. And I know this is controversial, what I'm saying, and no one go off your <laughs> epilepsy medication because I'm telling you this, but it's what happened. And so I, he was saying, I, I used to go for chiropractic once a week and I'd have massage and I started to not be as stressed and that was the key. It was the stress that was the problem. So when I would think I was going to have a seizure or I'd get the funny lights, it would be when I was really stressed. So I just in the end went, okay, I've got to put up the stop sign. I've got to start and believe I'm not epileptic. And whether it was power of the mind, I, I can't explain it. The medical model can't explain why. And they tested me again and months later or a year later, and they said, you don't have the symptoms anymore in the brain. We can't. And I said, all right, can you explain it? And they said, why would you go off that medication? Why did you stop medication? And I said, I want to represent Australia in the Olympics. I I can't be on that medication and compete. And they said, you know, you could die trying to do this. And I said, I, I realised that. So there was lots of things in hindsight I probably shouldn't have done, but when the desire is so great, you don't care so much. So I I, I did stop having seizures and then they put me in the courts to work is the beautiful, soft, touchy rehab thing where I got sexually assaulted. And when I screamed from the rooftops and went and spoke to the highest person you could speak to, he told me I'd end up at the bottom of Sydney Harbour in concrete boots if I didn't pull my head in and stop overreacting. It was just a bit of slap and tickle. And, you know, you've got to expect that. You're a skirt in a jail and you're, you're a skirt in a 
in a court complex, that's, that's your lot in life. So it, it was things like that where you just go, no, I've got to dig deeper. And I, I went to the courts willingly because I always wanted to study law. And while I was there, I enrolled at Sydney University to study law. And that was going to be my new goal to have a law degree. But after what happened in the courts, it just made me do a 180 and go, I never want to study law. I never want to be part of the corrupt nonsense, what went on in that court. And it's one of my biggest regrets because I think, what could I have done with a law degree? And I could have helped so many more people. And, you know, it was very sad for, for me back then. And my friend who I was going to study law with ended up, he finished his law degree and he he now works in the police legal team. And I just think, well, where could I have ended up with a law degree? So I couldn't do judo, I couldn't do law, I couldn't work in the court where I actually had started loving working. So it was just a really hard time in my life that everything I loved and wanted to do had been taken away from me. And you just go, well, you know, what else is left? And it's it's times like that where you just go, well, you know, I've got nothing left. I've, I don't know if I can keep going. And not being able to do judo was one of the hardest times in my life where I tried to kill myself because I just went, I, I don't want to have AIDS. I don't want to die. I don't want to not be able to train anymore. And you, you take everything away from a person and you strip them back to a place they don't want to be either. And But that's where I see the sadness with the women at the refuge too, that I, I know what it's like to peel the onion layers away. And when you've just got the raw core, it's it's a sad, horrible place. We're all okay that we've got the onion layers on us at all times. But once they're gone, you know, it's, it's a very vulnerable, hard place to be. And I, I think these days, mental health, it's just so difficult for so many. But mental health, it's all about what what you what you're putting into your body what you're eating and the energy you're exerting and you know if i can get a woman at the refuge to eat better and eat better fruit and veg and you know they say i can't sleep at night and i say well how much exercise are you doing and there's so much physiology that i've been trained to do with judo and swimming i, I used to also love swimming too and i represented Australia at the Law Enforcement Olympics in Canada in 1990. And I I truly believe if I didn't excel with judo, I would have gone into swimming. So I'm one of my other big worries too. So that's, um, I think the um, best part about the um, stuff being able to, sorry, swimming there. Um, to follow your dreams and to to do what you want in life. And even though it was a really horrible time for me, what happened with the prisons and what happened later on down the track, it um, 
things work out how they're meant to be and you end up being a better person because you you do dig deeper and whatever I was meant to be doing is what I'm doing now and I, I believe every job I did and everything even when I left the prisons I set up a private investigation business and all of that I, I believe is what helps me every day in that refuge and to be able to not give advice but just tell them part of my journey well you know my mental health stuff I need to eat well and if I'm not juicing and even back then I'd get up and have my little orange juicer that I, I juice my oranges every day and I used to eat this plowman's bread and I'd put mung beans and really healthy salad on my sandwich every day and I'd, I'd eat you know muesli and yogurt and you know peaches or pears up the towers and it, it was eating healthy and, and a lot of carbs everything was carbs but judo and now I can't even look at carbs I just go nah <laughs> not for me so but with with mental health and young people especially because there's so much suicide with young people that if they just had more people to talk to and I think it's great these days that men especially are reaching out and having men's groups and people come together and they support each other and that's what people needs to do if if you're sad or lonely get in a meetup group get in support groups that can help you and be vulnerable tell people I'm hurting I, I need help because when when hurt people hurt people and you know you, you can be that better person and dig deeper and you can go and help other people overcome their hurt and pain by digging deeper and helping others and that's what I do each day I I didn't want to hurt people I did a few years of that in the prison and I hated it I hated every day in the prisons because it was really good money but I didn't like what it represented and I loved the money to be able to travel the world and I did I did a lot of traveling overseas in the years I was in the prisons but having this monster who sexually assaulted me and others and last year when I told one of the other survivors of sexual assault that I was going to have him charged and I didn't care if he went to jail and that's a hard thing to say about a prison officer that I don't care if you go to jail because you know what happens to prison officers in jail that they don't have a good time and they're hated by everyone but I didn't care and I just when I told my friend I put him in such a state and he went to kill himself he went to hang himself in a tree in a park opposite where I live but and just the way he spoke and when he walked off I thought I'll just sit and I'll just relax and then just something in me went go after him he's not good and I think it's those gut instincts and those moments in your life where your gut takes over and goes get up and I got up after him and 
he had a cigar and he doesn't even smoke anymore and he had a can of um i think it was jim beam from memories and then he had another one in his pocket and i went over and i said to him what are you doing and he said i'm just having a smoke and a drink and you know it's my last hurrah uh, i just roger i just burst into tears and i said you're going to kill yourself, aren't you? And he said, I can't do it anymore. He said, I'm so sorry I couldn't rescue you and I couldn't keep you safe. And I just started to laugh. And I said, I used to fight 72 kilos, under 72 kilos. I said, that guy would have been 120, 130 kilos. I said, the two of us together probably couldn't have taken him down. Like he was, he was a mountain of a man. I said... You, you can't expect that you could have done that. And he wasn't a big guy. He he would have probably been 80 kilo pops. And he said, I just, he said, I never told you, but I really loved you and I couldn't protect you. And I can't now and I can't do it. I'm not strong like you. And I want to make a statement to police, but I just can't do it. And then he saw how upset I was, he then said, I've got to do it tonight. And I walked over to this tree and he tied a rope in the tree and he was going to hang himself. And I just lost it. And I just hugged him and hugged him and said, you don't understand what an impact you've had on my life. Like you, you can't end it like this. He said, the, the story doesn't end here. I said, be strong with me and we'll stand united and there'll be others that'll come forward and it's it's the me too movement that has helped people now um, be able to stand up and be counted and say it's not okay what you did to me and you know your your judgment day is coming and you know, for others who have been also sexually assaulted in the workplaces, as you have, Susie, it's it's a horrible, sad thing to admit. And for me to be a prison officer and be sexually assaulted, it was almost like, well, that's a bit of a joke. You can protect yourself. But you can't once they've got it over you. And he, he had it over me automatically because of his rank and his structure and his stature and back then it was brothers in arms you don't report yeah. you don't dock another officer and now is he still um uh the man that you are taking to court because i know this is happening in what three weeks or less than three weeks that you're actually going to be heard the voice that you've been using for, you know, the la or trying to use for the last, what, 31 years or something, you two are about to have your turn to be heard, um, that you, you, you know, we spoke yesterday um, that you actually are um, fearful of your life right now because of the, the position of power that this individual is in because of the connections that he has, uh, which is one of the reasons why, um, apart from talking about all the, how, what an amazing woman you are, it's, um, I think, for it's now our turn to hear you as a collective through just, you know, this podcast, anybody else that you can tell that you're fearful for your life now. It's important that we get your story out um, and just see you and make sure many, as many people see you that, you know, you're about to 
take someone down that's big and powerful and having taken someone help take someone down that's big and powerful it's a scary place to be because uh you know you have to be fearless and you have to be brave but you've actually you know surreptitiously been threatened um and um you know you're getting threatened i wasn't threatened you're getting threatened and you actually do fear for your life and i know you can't really talk about too much of it um because you just can't but i just want you to know that we see you that i see you that i think you're amazing and that there's many people that can um back smile contact smile hear smile uh support her with everything that she's done with people women um um fleeing from domestic violence it's her turn now it's her turn to be heard so if you're out there well not if you're out there you're out there listen to Simone listen to her story keep an eye on the news and what's going to happen and make sure that you know um if you see Simone make sure you check in on her if you know what her number is make sure you support her contact her on messenger make sure that she's okay because this is when we join together as a tribe as a societal tribe of men and women to support one of our own who has done so much for um people in need around us you know um it's not good that you're you're feeling fearful you know right now because you're about to have your time in court after such a long time um uh, i don't know what else we can do for you except that last time like oh let's talk about it right now let's get it out there let's let's tell people that you're scared let's tell people that you've been threatened uh, it doesn't really matter how you've been threatened but you have been threatened um Simone's just told us the most amazing story of who she was in the in the system that is supposed to protect us and she wasn't protected and she wasn't protected as a young woman and she's not being protected now um so it's up to us i think as a this there's, there's there's safety in numbers and the more that we our voices Simone are heard um the more that we become a little bit untouchable uh and as you know you, you know you only hear when you speak and, and you've been speaking really loudly and now you get a chance to speak really loudly now you're actually really going to be heard hopefully where it counts you know because you would never know what the outcome is going to be uh and you've worked in a system that's um certainly had years of corruption which would be so disheartening um when you're trying to you know and I know you haven't had the support uh as as that you really needed by police um and by different government um organizations for the sanctuary that you put together and um life has been um uh, a series of you being um resilient and um rising up under over under over and through huge challenges you know uh but like you said you know we we are we are all put on this journey and we're all we're all on our own individual journeys and we sent these trials and tribulations and tests to see who we are and become the person that we're supposed to be and now you know that you weren't really supposed to be a lawyer uh you know you were really supposed to be exactly who you are with us right now and the hundreds and hundreds of people you've saved by using your life knowledge and the and the counseling and and not just the hinds but the counseling and the love you've been able to give to give people and just not just one person you've saved from suicide you would have saved so many that you didn't even know of you know um so what is there anything um that we as a collective on the gold coast and in society can do for you right now right i am grateful 
for beautiful and polite you for caring. Thanks, Susie. And I'm, I've got the people I need in my bubble right now to keep me strong. And I, I think there's, there's beautiful people out there who are also hurting. And if they're hurting, contact them. And if they need support, I'm, I'm here to support them too, because I think my, my friend's okay. And he's standing up in the court case. I don't want to name him because of what's about to happen, but I, I had a threat last week and they've let me know that they can get to me. And I just went, wow. And I've also let police know and police just sort of went, oh yeah, well, it might've been nothing. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it wasn't nothing. That was a big, yeah, we can get to you if we want you. So I, I think to just every day I'm ramping up my training a whole lot more and whether or not I'll go back to training with the veterans just so that I'm mentally tough and it's a plea hearing in three weeks time but the police are already aware that he's pleading not guilty and um, that's his journey his choice but for what he did to my friend that he almost killed him last year you know 32 years later he's had a road of hell that he couldn't even tell psychologists and psychiatrists his his years of terror and i think he'll come out of it a stronger person too and you know it was only because we got a client who came to the refuge and she was fleeing from al-qaeda and when we found out the story i've got an beautiful friend, Kathleen Simpson, who has supported me with the refuge. She's a solicitor for seven years. And I gave her this client. I, I didn't know the full story and the client was terrified and wouldn't tell me the full story for quite a few months till she was at the refuge. And when she told me what was happening for her, she was immersed in Sydney and I pretty much got the gist that she was in so much danger. The perpetrator kept leaving cards on her car saying, run, run, you can't catch me on the gingerbread man. Run, run as fast as you can. You can't catch me on the gingerbread man. And it terrified her and it was bone chilling. And she said, it didn't matter where I went. He just, he could find me. And I said, how could he find you if you've ditched your phone, if you've ditched this? And she said, it just doesn't matter where I go. I, I just talked to this one cop and it, the perpetrator keeps finding me. And she said, I hate to say it, but I, I don't know if you believe me. I, you'll probably think I'm crazy, but I think the cop's corrupt. And I just started laughing. And I just went, you think the cop's corrupt? I said... Let me tell you, the cop's corrupt and you need to get out of Sydney. I said, I can't help you to you before me. I said, once you get to Queensland, I can help you. But she she had exotic burns with her, like like this crazy little boy here who's just so wants my attention. That's this kind of way you with me and you haven't given me attention for so long. And I 
said to her, get up here. She got up here. She did everything I told her to do. I said, ditch your phones. Give your phones in Sydney. Go buy a burner phone. Get the car to the beautiful guys at Dunlop Tire and Auto at Burley Heads. And they checked the car over that it didn't have a tracker in it. And so she came to the refuge and they knew the story. But we didn't know it was Al-Qaeda and we didn't know that the guy had killed someone. And it was just the most horrific story. And as it unfolded over the months, my daughter was studying law and I said to her, can you take this girl to Coffs Harbour Police? The Sydney cops were corrupt and they tipped off the partner. But I don't think the corruption would get to Coffs Harbour. But if... If it does, you might be unsafe. And um, anyway, my daughter comes back absolutely traumatised, so traumatised, saying, you don't understand, Mum, you're in so much danger. And I'm like, yeah, 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 all domestic violence is dangerous. You know, that's that's fine. You know, I deal with this each day. And about three days later, she had an absolute breakdown going, it's Al-Qaeda, you're going to die, Mum. And I'm like okay, you've got my attention. Why didn't you say that? And she's like, I've been trying to tell you, you're going to die. And I'm like, wow. So I rang beautiful Kathleen and a few days later, Kathleen rang me saying, do you think we're at risk? And I went, I'd keep two copies of all your files, Kathleen. I said, I'd keep one somewhere else from your workplace. And she said, do you think they're going to burn my office down? I went, we might. And then I had to implicate beautiful Sonia Driver and use Eco10 to get all the files copied. And I couldn't tell Sonia till after, oh, by the way, we were copying the files so I could get her files to Sydney when she was about to go into witness protection. And like the case just kept getting bigger and bigger. And then I'm like, great, now I've put my daughter in danger who's studying law. And it's those moments that you go, I've really failed as a mum. Like there's fail as a mum and then there's Simone level fail as a mum. And I just thought, how do I do this? But the amazing copper at Coffs Harbour was beautiful. And I've got another beautiful friend, Annie, who's a cop on the central coast. And I rang her. She's like my sounding board when I go, it's really bad and there's really corrupt cops. And she just went, yep, I'm hearing you. Yep, Coffs Harbour's a really good place, mate. Like, chances are it's probably not got that far. So this cop helped this woman. She got her into witness protection. She kept her safe, and she is still safe. I'm praying and hoping. But what what happened out of this is after we got her safe, I thought maybe I should go to Coffs Harbour. So I rang the same copper and said, you helped my client and, you know, and I'm sure she hated this phone call that I said, you know, there was corrupt cops that also didn't do the right thing by me and corrupt prison officers and um, it went as high as it could go and they wanted to kill me and she said, come down, I'll take your statement. And when I got there, I found, ironically, it was like finding it in the Titanic my statement had dropped wet out in my sauna and in these tubs and the the whole statement I had to peel off 
and put it on greaseproof paper. It had been sitting in water for I don't know how long, months, years. And when I got it to Coffs Harbour Police Station, the coppers going, well, I didn't tell me this statement. Like, well done that you've kept this statement for, you know, 30 years, but uh, it's destroyed. You can barely read it. And I said, I know, but it's still legible. So she photocopied it and we had to, where I'd peeled the bits of paper off, we had to like jigsaw puzzle the statement back together. And, um, but she did the right thing. And so what my message is here for you is if one doctor doesn't give, give you the, the thing you need, and if one police officer doesn't do the right thing and there's corruption and if there's corruption in a government department you're working for, keep going, go higher, go deeper until you get someone that will believe you and will trust you to help you. And that's what I did. I, I made a statement five years after I left the job and ironically, would you believe it? Like magic, that statement went missing. The police have no recollection. But thank goodness I kept my police statement. So, you know, you've got to keep documents. You've got to keep anything that can support your story because I'm sure for 32 years I've been telling my story and people... I'm sure they wanted to believe it, but thought it's just so far-fetched. That can't really have really happened, but it really did. And it was horrible, but thank goodness for this cop. Thank goodness that she believed me and she helped me. And now it's going to court. So, you know, for anyone who's lived a similar journey, just don't stop until you get what you want because... I am so happy that I'm going to court. I'm so happy that I hope there's justice down the track. I hope the judge sees what's happened. I hope I'm screaming. It's night time, so you have to go to bed. So I um I'm just so grateful for everything I have and my journey of meeting the amazing people and some of the journalists I meet and some of the amazing people in in my life that will do keep me strong and I've got I've got beautiful friends and it's um it's stuff like that that and my animals I, I've got amazing animals out at the refuge we're on a few acres and we've got alpacas and sheep and goats and shorts and ducks and peacocks and you know I I had a beautiful mate in the prisons Jerry Hayes one of my judo coaches that took it to Japan when I was 16 and he was one of the big bosses in the prisons and he protected me a lot and I'm grateful to people like him and he studied law and the irony of what I wanted to do as well so it's they don't literally They think mine. You're absolutely amazing. Yeah. It's been really like, you know, you're so inspirational to listen to. Great advice to give people just don't quit. Um don't quit at anything. Or if um anyone you've um, said if anyone wants to reach out to you, where can they reach out to you at? They can find me on the Sanctuary Women, Children and Pets Refugee Facebook page. They can find the 
website, which is sanctuaryrefuge.com.au. And I, um, I support anyone and everyone to stay strong, dig deeper and out for your mates, look out for those who aren't doing well and have mental health issues. And, you know, if you've got the mental health issues, reach out and find like-minded people that can help you too. So I think we've all got to look out for each other. And that's why when I saw your thing this morning, yesterday, Susie, I am reached out to you at four o'clock in the morning. <laughs> Ironically, at four in the morning, you're there, Ned, going, yeah, yeah, call me. <laughs> so, and it's beautiful things like that. But these days, I think once you're over 50, you just go, I don't care anymore. If if you want to do something, you just do it. And you, do. you don't for people to come to you. You just, you make things happen and you stop caring so much if what people think. And now I don't care what anyone thinks. I've gone against the grain and I've started this refuge against all the odds. Um, my husband and I split up five years ago and I thought I'd lose the refuge, not having money. And I've, I've kept it going and it seems like that, that you go, well, that's, that's a beautiful thing that there's great people to support resilience you know you've got the people you've got you you've got this amazing spirit um you've gone through so much you have so much resilience and uh, it's all about making a difference and your story has been amazing i'm gonna let you go because your bird it wants some attention um well, you going on, thank you so much your time. Thanks. I know you're a really busy lady. I really appreciate you sharing your story with us, Mine. It's been really amazing getting to know a little bit about you and the most amazing woman that you are and all the good that you've done in the world. And I'll send you heaps of blessings and love and big cuddles and raw solidarity. Yeah. What's happening when you and go to court? Uh, thank you. And yeah, so everyone, give, please give Simone at home. A massive um, uh, big applause for joining us today and thank you. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you so much. And Lucy, I think you're an inspirational, amazing woman and you know I love your videos for years, but with what you've done and you, you took on an absolute, it was David and Goliath with you and Rolf Harris. Like there's not many people that you can go, I took on Ralph Harris and won. And that's you. And you are one amazing human to do that. And to be able to do what you've done is just phenomenal that you, you went to London and, you know, to stare Rolf Harris down and to stand up for it wasn't okay what you did to me when I was young. That's, that's just so tough and so ballsy of you to do such a thing and you you are so in my bubble Susie forever that you know to to do something like that and to be able to live with yourself and go yeah I, I did that and it's just such an amazing thing my great Dane is now playing with my macaw over here this place is like a circus uh, uh, thank you so much and there was me there was another nine of us 
brave, strong women that stood up to have our voices heard um, and took on, like you said, it was a David and Goliath situation, you know, and we never do these things alone. Sometimes there's only a few of us, though, that have the, I guess the, I didn't feel that I was being fearless or brave at the time, but apparently I was. And like you, it's just who we are as women. We're Westy chicks. We come from the West, from the Western suburbs of Sydney where they breed them up and they breed them strong. So thank you, Simone, for coming. Have a beautiful evening and it's been awesome talking to you. Thank, thank you, you, Sue. Stay thank strong, you're a You too. Thank you.